I told you last Sunday, or I should say I threatened, <laughs> that we're going to finish Galatians someday. Well, guess what? Today's the day. We are going to look at Galatians and finish off uh, this wonderful and magnificent epistle. So would you open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. We'll look at verses 11 through 18 in detail this morning. Now, as we finish our study of this amazing epistle, it's important to remember the things that made this distinct from other Pauline writings. If you remember initially, we mentioned in chapter 1 that Paul bypassed his normal method of writing either a word of encouragement or offering a prayer over the recipients of the letter because the content of the letter was pressing and he cut to the chase, so to speak. We also noted that exclusive to the letter to the church at Galatia, even though he wrote rather aggressively to the church at Corinth, uh, the first predominantly Gentile church of the New Testament age, Paul used language that was exclusive to his letters in his letter to the church at Galatia. Twice he called them foolish, and he even referred to them as being bewitched. The only time that word is used in the New Testament. He used it in chapter 3, verse 1, where he said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you or spiritually deceived you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now this tells us why this particular letter was so passionate, why Paul's verbiage was so aggressive. There were some Judaizers who were telling Gentile Christians, in essence, that you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. You need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And you'll find that teaching in the book of Second Opinions. It's not in our Bibles, right? This group was trying to add works to that which the Holy Spirit had done in them. And Paul said, have all the things you've suffered for proclaiming the risen Lord been in vain? Has it all been for nothing? And then he says, did keeping the law result in you being born of the Spirit? And then in chapter 1, looking back again, we saw in 6 through 9, Paul marveled that they were turning away so soon from him who called him in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. Paul's saying there's only one gospel, and it's the gospel of Christ and him crucified. Amen? Amen. And he said, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now remember, the word pervert means to make into its opposite or have the opposite effect. And he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven even if his name is Moroni. If we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, Paul's, Paul writes, <coughs> excuse me, so now I say again, if anyone, say anyone, anyone, anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now, our final verses will be the closing argument of this magnificent epistle. And the words we read, or will read, I should say, were written not in the traditional means of dictating them to a secretary who would then record them, but Paul is going to take the pen into his own hand 
as he did at the end of 1 Corinthians, Colossians, and 2 Thessalonians, and write the closing salutation. Now, the practice was likely to verify authorship, but the spiritual and doctrinal purpose of this handwritten closing salutation was to remind the Galatians of what is our title this morning, and that is the wonder of the cross. The wonder of the cross. Now, the cross was always on Paul's mind even though he recognized and wrote that the subject was divisive. To the Jews, he said it was a stumbling block, and to the Greek, it was foolishness in 1 Corinthians 1.23. He would tell the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2.1-5, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him what? Crucified, there's the power of the gospel. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be the wisdom of men, in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Listen, it's better to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit than be eloquent. And this is what Paul is saying. This is why he wrote so passionately to the Galatians. The Judaizers were adding the works of the flesh to the blood of Christ as the means by which you must be saved. And the minimizing of the wonder of the cross, rendering the blood of Jesus as insufficient to cover our sins, was Paul's subject throughout the epistle. Listen, we cannot add to the gospel. We cannot take away from the gospel without impacting its efficacy. Now listen, if you add works, tradition, or religious observance to the gospel of Christ and Him crucified, you declare that the blood of Jesus is common with those things. And by that, you diminish the saving and transformative power of Jesus Christ, which is by definition to preach another gospel. Now the cross exposes the sinfulness of mankind. But the cross demonstrates the love of Christ for sinful man. And if you add works to the saving power of the cross, you've robbed it of its wonder. If you limit the implications of the resurrection of Christ from the dead, who is alive forevermore, and how that impacts those who believe, you've robbed Jesus' death on the cross of its wonder. And after six chapters of establishing doctrinal truth, Paul now lands on the main thing and writes with his own hand of the wonder of the cross. Are you ready to finish this great epistle? Yes. Stand and read with me, please. Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. <clears throat> Galatians 6, 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. 
From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Thank you that you have given us a book that opens the eyes of our understanding, that enlightens our thinking, and uh, Lord, by your spirit gives us ears to hear what you're saying. So Lord, we pray that you would speak to us as we finish off this incredible book today. And we ask now your blessing on our time and the reading of your word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Now Paul opens his closing remarks by exposing the motive behind the Judaizers. And by the way, the motive behind the Judaizers is the motive behind all false teaching and teachers. He doesn't present their doctrinal arguments or how they question the word of God, nor does he discuss their interpretive differences, but rather Paul says what's common among all false teachers is that they are deceiving you in hopes of gaining personal benefit from you. They want you to follow them for their sake, not for yours. And in this case, what would be the benefit to them was the acceptance of other Jews and an end to persecution because they denied the keeping of the law as a practical means by which one could be saved. And Paul refutes this by saying, they're asking you to do what they don't even do themselves. They don't even keep the law themselves, but their hope is that they can boast to others that they have converted you to their line of thinking. Now, in chapter 5, 1 to 4, Paul said to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty, in this context, that means freedom from the law, by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you what? Nothing. And nothing in the Greek means nothing. nothing. <laughs> and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from what? You've fallen from grace. Now it's important maybe to pause here for a moment because we often hear that the word grace means unmerited favor. And indeed in the Hebrew, it does. You find it in Genesis chapter five, six, it means to stoop to an inferior in kindness. And the Hebrew word is ken. Uh, C-H-E-N are the characters we would use to write it in English. However, the English or the Greek word translated as grace is the, is the Greek word charis, and it actually means divine inspiration in the heart and its reflection in the life. And Paul says, if you put yourself under the law, you're no longer reflecting what Christ has done in your heart. You become obligated to keep the whole law, which no one does. And James points out in 2.10, whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of what? Listen, raise your neighbor's hand if they've ever lied. <laughs> Everybody's lied, right? Well, listen, you didn't become a sinner when you lied. You lied because you're a sinner. And whoever offends in one point of the law is therefore guilty of breaking the whole law. In other words, you're a lawbreaker. Whether you broke a lot of the law or a little of the law, you still need a savior, amen? Yeah. And this is what James is talking about. This is what Paul is talking about. If you offend in part of the law, or if you try and keep a portion of the law, your obligation then is to keep the whole law, which no man can do. Now, 
Some have said that Paul writing in large letters implies that the thorn in the flesh that he had incurred was indeed an ailment in the region in the Middle East in his day known as ophthalmia. It was a uh, eye condition that caused a, a discharge from the eyes. It was very unpleasant to the person it happened to, and it was very unpleasant to those who would look at them. Others say Paul wrote in large letters for emphasis. Anybody ever get a text in all caps? <laughs> That's somebody yelling at you, right? And others are saying this is what Paul was doing. It was like underlining or bolding in a document. And whichever is true, and I believe it's the latter of the two, we need to come away with this fact. These are the closing words of the great apostle in a very passionate and aggressive letter, and therefore we need to pay close attention to the subject. We need to look very carefully at what he is writing. Now listen, we need to make a point in order to get to our first point. That's the point of us being here. <laughs> and listen, when you talk about the wonder of the cross, you're talking about the blood of Jesus. Yeah. When you talk about the cross, you talk about the blood of Jesus. When you talk about the tomb, you're talking about the blood of Jesus because that's the central aspect of that whole three-day period. The cross didn't pay for our sins. The blood shed on the cross paid for our sins. And this tells us the first thing about the wonder of the cross. Listen, there is no human action that can equal the shed blood of Jesus. There is no human action that can equal the shed blood of Jesus. Now listen, you can be a good moral person. There's good people out there, right? Yeah. There are caring people out there who are unsaved. There are people who care about the needs of others, who do good for other uh, people, who do a lot of the things that Christians are called to do uh, in the Word of God, and yet they don't know the God of the Word. But listen, you can be a good moral person, but you can never be moral enough to save your own soul. Right. It can't happen. You can observe every religious ritual. You can say, Hail Mary's and our fathers and confess to a priest until you're blue in the face, but it ain't going to save your soul. And listen, you can be the most generous person who has ever lived, but access to heaven is not for sale. You can't buy your way in. And Hebrews 10, 1 to 4 says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image, of the things can never, say never, yes. can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect or complete. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins. How often? Every year, speaking of the annual sacrifices, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Let me remind you that the sacrifices were instituted by God. God said, this is what you need to do daily. This is what you need to offer sacrificially yearly. Once a year, the high priest needs to go into the most holy place and offer the blood of a, a goat and, or a sheep and sprinkle blood on the altar and before the altar and then release uh, the blood-drenched head of the sheep out into the wilderness, symbolizing the taking away of sins. But even the ordained sacrifices of God could not do what the blood of Jesus Christ was going to do. Greater blood had to be offered in order for us to be saved. And indeed, Jesus offered that blood. Revelation 1, 4-6 
John the Beloved says to the seven churches who are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and is and who is to come, a title exclusively for God, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. Does it say future ruler? Does it say former ruler? He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Our God is in charge. Amen. Amen. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in what? His own. his own blood. And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Somebody say. Amen. Now listen, tune in this morning. To say that circumcision is necessary for salvation makes circumcision equal to the blood of Jesus. To say that baptism is necessary for salvation makes baptism equal to the blood of Jesus. To say, I'm still going to keep coming. You ready? Yeah. To say that tongues is necessary for salvation is to say that speaking in tongues is equal to the blood of Jesus. What can wash away our sins? Nothing, Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's one of the wonders of the cross. Amen. And there is no human action equal to the shed blood of Jesus in value that is. Let's look at 14 and 15 once again. Paul would say, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor un uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Now, our verses remind us of man's incessant need for spiritual self-justification. Oh, I did this, so I deserve that. Oh, I went to church, so I have to be let into heaven. Now, everybody goes to church as a Christian, right? No, going to church can't save you. That would make church attendance equal to the shed blood of Jesus, right? Lots of people go to church out of obligation. We come here out of adoration for what Jesus has done for us. Amen? Or, you know what? I did this and this good work should cancel out that lie I told or that thing I did or that uh, forbidden thing that I long for, which is what lust is defined as, longing for forbidden things. So... This should result in something beneficial to me. Christ died for the ungodly. He died for sinners, right? Therefore, we all qualify. Listen, I will readily admit I'm a sinner. My wife would admit that. <laughs> Probably even more readily than I would admit it. But, but listen, we, I think like John Newton said, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. He has saved us, amen? And this is what Paul would say in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of works. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Lest anyone should do what? In other words, nobody has any right to brag about being worthy to be saved. Amen. And then he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. There's a 2 Corinthians 5, 17 thing. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We are created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And by the way, our next book, after we look at our PowerPoint word next Sunday, is going to be Ephesians. So if you'd like to read ahead, 
we'll be looking at this uh, magnificent book that's actually on the next page uh, of your Bible. So we'll continue on there and we'll examine these verses in great detail when we get there in 2022. I mean, that's in chapter two. That's months and months away by the time we get there. But listen, in our study of Ephesians and what we just read, we have to note the sequence. Being saved by grace precedes the good works that we ought to walk in. We don't walk into salvation by good works. He saves us and puts us to work. Yes. Amen? Yes. Now, this single fact eliminates anyone's right to boast about deserving or earning salvation. And Paul would say to the church at Philippi in 3, 2, and 6, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. He's talking about the same group that invaded Galatia, at least uh, collectively in their ideology. They were Judaizers. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh or in your works. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. And then Paul gives his credentials. He says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day, according to Hebrew tradition, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law. Paul says, I was a Pharisee concerning zeal as a Jew. I persecuted the church concerning the righteousness, which is in the law. Paul says, I kept the law, so I was blameless. Now, this is why Paul was so passionate about this subject in Galatians. The credentials he cited in Philippians played absolutely no part in his salvation. He said, this is my pedigree. You know, I'm a Jew. I know what tribe I was from. As a matter of fact, I was a Pharisee. And any listening Jew, Messianic Jew, would know that in order to be a Pharisee, you had to have the first five books of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, memorized completely. You had to memorize the whole law. And as a student, any rabbi could walk by you and demand that you quote a passage at any given time. And you had to be able to recite it or there were penalties for that. Paul said, you know, as a Pharisee concerning zeal and persecuting the church, I was the Jews Jew. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He said, but you know what? It meant nothing in the saving of my soul. As a matter of fact, regarding his past in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul said, the only thing that I can reckon regarding my past is that I was the chief of sinners. That's how he looked at himself. He didn't look at himself as being qualified and worthy of being saved. He looked at himself as a mess. Anybody here this morning? We need a savior, amen? And then Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, even though he wrote a major portion of the New Testament, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Listen, by the grace of God, you am what you am too. So we ought to be thankful, right? And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. This is why Paul could say, after being saved by grace, there's works prepared beforehand for us to walk in, and we're going to have to labor in them. We're going to have to work hard at them. We're going to have to strive at them in order to fulfill them, and we should walk in them. And Paul is very practical in his self-assessment in that he states he did work hard. He worked hard at fulfilling his calling. But even then he acknowledged that was the grace of God at work in me. It wasn't me at all. And Paul says, becoming a new creation was not my doing, 
nor was it something I deserved or had earned. The only boast that I can make is in, in the cross of our Lord Jesus. And by that, I became a new creation, not being circumcised or uncircumcised. The Lord Jesus bore our sins. He became a curse for us, according to the scripture, because we could not gain release from our sins any other way. If we could have been forgiven by our own good works, by being circumcised or keeping the law, there would have been no need for Jesus to go to the cross. And listen, we have to remember, not just on Easter, we have to remember every single day that Jesus despised the shame of the cross, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured it all. Do you know the Bible records for us, before it ever happened in Micah, that his visage, his appearance was marred more than any other human being in the history of the world. He was beaten to the point where he wasn't even recognizable as a human being. But yet by his stripes. Who, who, who was healed? We are healed. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. He was doing it for you and I, and this is why Paul would say in 2.21 of Galatians, I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Amen. Now, every time we look to the cross, it would be as if Jesus were saying, I'm here because of you. It's your sin that I'm bearing. It's your curse that I'm suffering. It's your death that I'm dying. And the reason I think Paul landed on the cross in his closing argument is the cross cuts us all down to size. Yes, yes. As it's been said, the ground is level yes. at the foot of the cross. Yes. Anybody can come and everyone should. Amen? Yes. Amen. It puts all of our self-perceptions in their proper place. And this is part of the wonder of the cross. And it makes our second point. Now, I do want to preface our second point by giving this disclaimer. I did not used to work for the Department of Redundancy Department. <laughs> and it might sound like I'm repeating myself, but I think you'll get it in a moment. Listen, here's our second observation. The cross justified our justification. The cross justified our justification. Now, what we often overlook or simply fail to understand is that our forgiveness is not free. Our sins didn't go unpunished. Somebody else was punished for them. And that somebody else was Jesus. And listen, God would not be just if he did not punish iniquity. If he did not do something about sin and rebellion against him, he could not claim to be the righteous authority over all creation. For we all understand that wrong needs to be punished. And in Romans 5, 18 to 21, Paul reminds us, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Speaking of the first Adam who fell in the garden and the second Adam who defeated the one who tempted Adam to fall in the garden. Moreover, the law entered that the offense may abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through whom? Jesus. 
Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul, in his closing argument, is reminding us all that the only thing we can boast in as it relates to our forgiveness is the cross of Jesus. That's the only way we can lay claim to being forgiven. The cross upon which Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. The cross where he paid your sin debt and mine. The cross where his brutal death justified our justification. Listen, crucifixion was invented by the Persians. It was a way to prolong the death process to increase the level of brutality, yielding maximum pain and suffering for the perpetrator of their crimes. It was later perfected by the Romans. And historians have reported that at the time of Jesus in and around Israel, there were over 30,000 people who were crucified. So the Jews were used to seeing people hanging on the cross for their crimes against Rome. Now the interesting thing with the excruciating pain on the cross, the word excruciating actually has a root in the Latin language. And then the middle of the word translated as excruciating in the English is the Latin word crux. The Latin word crux is the Latin word for cross. So in the middle of the word excruciating is the cross. And that's where Jesus hung for you and hung for me. Listen, there are many cries for justice in our world today. And we are repulsed when justice is not served. There are protests going on all around the world right now, including in France, including in Israel, where a man brutally beat a Jewish woman, 63 years old, beat her for an hour, threw her out the third story window while crying out, Allahu Akbar, which is the cry of the Muslim that Allah is greater than Jehovah. That's what it means. God is greater. It doesn't mean God is great. It means God is greater. God is greater. Allah is greater than the God of Israel. God is, Allah is greater than the God of the Christian. There is but one God, and it is a true and living God, and his name is Jehovah. Amen? Amen. This man beat this woman for an hour, threw her off the third floor of a building, cried Allahu Akbar as he did so, and a French court judge said the man was not responsible for the woman's death because he smoked pot before he did these things, and it's pot's fault, not the man's fault. And we hear things like that, and our mind cries injustice. And our thoughts demand justice. Because we understand that wrong must be punished. And in our case, as it relates to what separates us from God, our sins were punished. That's why Jesus went to the cross. To endure the punishment that you and I deserve. By his stripes were healed. By his wounds our transgressions were forgiven. He was bruised for our iniquities because he had none of his own. And therefore, the cross justified our justification. God didn't say, you know what? Kind of like you guys. No, he looked over humanity and said, mm, there's none good, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. Is his assessment of all humans who have ever lived. But he is a God of love. But he is also a just God. He could not let sin go unpunished. So you know what he did? He sent his own son to the cross. That's what we often skip about the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. 
did he give his son to? He gave his son to the brutality of the cross. That whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And therefore that justified the justification of all who would believe. Listen, God punished your sin. He just didn't punish you. I'm sorry, apparently my mic went off when I said that. God punished for your sin. He just didn't punish you. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not buying it. I'm, I don't think you guys are getting this. Now, John the Beloved said in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the, the one among many who are righteous. No, the righteous, the exclusive one. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. Whole world. Now listen, propitiation or propitiation just means appeasement or atonement. It's been described as, and rightfully so, as debt satisfaction because it does have an accounting association. So the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he satisfied the debt that we had accumulated by our sins, thus justifying our justification by paying the penalty we all owed. Now, let's wrap it up in 16 to 18 before I get excited. <laughs> and as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. I don't think I have ever read two verses where there has been so much nonsense created from them than two of the three we just read. Verses 16 and 17 are, are examples. Some have erringly used verse 16 as proof that the church has replaced Israel because Paul uses the phrase, the Israel of God. Now listen, are you still here? Yeah. If the church has placed, replaced Israel, then there are parts of the Bible that are not true. And if there are parts of the Bible that are not true, who's going to make that determination? Fallible human beings? It has to all be true or it's all out the window. And it's all true. And listen, if the church has replaced Israel, then Daniel shouldn't have written that there were 70 weeks determined for your people in Holy City. He should have written that there's only 69 because 69 have already been fulfilled. And there's a 70th coming, which coinkydink <laughs> coincides with the tribulation, which lasts for how long? Seven years. One of the, the, or the 70th week prophesied to Daniel. Now listen this morning. If the church has replaced Israel, then Ezekiel shouldn't have written chapter 37. He should have skipped over that whole dry bones coming alive and the land flourishing once again. Zechariah should have stopped writing in chapter 11 because 12 to 14 pertains to the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Isaiah should only be 59 chapters long, 60 to 66. Talk about Israel, the rebirth, the millennial kingdom. And listen, if the church has replaced Israel, Paul was not being honest when he wrote Romans. And listen to this. If the church has replaced Israel, Revelation is allegorical and not literal. And again, when you have something like that that is meant to be read literally, 
even though it's filled with symbolism and identifies itself as having symbolism within it to communicate. And listen, we need to understand that the reason Revelation and other books use symbolic language is so that it can be understood by every generation. Listen, he describes the voice that he heard in heaven like the voice of the sound of many waters. Now, if he said, it's like the voice of an F-15 taken off from Miramar. <laughs> Could the previous generations understand what that sounded like? Every generation understands a voice like a big waterfall or a rushing river, or it was like a trumpet. And, and prophetic language is always, or figurative language is always included in prophecy, so every generation can understand it. And listen, Israel is distinct from the church. But are Jews saved in the same way as Gentiles? Do Jews have to be born again? Absolutely. Did not Jesus say to Nicodemus, uh, excuse me, aren't you the teacher of Israel and you didn't know you had to be born again? Well, listen, because Jews and Gentiles both come to Jesus or both are allowed into heaven by the shed blood of the Lamb, who also happens to be the king of the Jews, we have to remember that Israel means Prince of God. Amen. How do you, or who is identified as a prince? That means their father is the king. king. How do you become a child of the king of kings? You must be born again. Whether you're ethnically a Jew or a Gentile, thus being the Israel of God has nothing to do with ethnicity and everything to do with spiritual rebirth. And Paul says, all who live by that rule, we can only boast in the cross of Christ and not the work of the flesh. These are the children of God. These are the princes and princesses of God. Now, we also find another misuse of scripture as Paul mentions that he bears in his body the stigmata, the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, this too has been abused down through the centuries. There have been those like Francis of Assisi who said, uh, who it was said that he bore the marks coinciding with the five injuries of Jesus on his own body. In other words, he bled from the same points that Jesus bled from when he was on the cross. Others have experienced, uh, claimed to experience uh, stigmatization down through the centuries, excessive bleeding from the points uh, that Jesus was wounded again on the cross. And this particular text is used as biblical support for such things. Colossians 1.24, Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. His body is what? Church. The church, which is the church, obviously. Now this verse in Colossians has also been misapplied to endorse and even create false teachings like a place called purgatory. And they're saying what Paul is teaching here is that he had to suffer in order to be purified further to gain access into heaven. No, that's not what Paul was saying. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. There's no reincarnation, there's no limbo, there's no place called purgatory. Those are unbiblical teachings. There are no after death sufferings to purify someone. That would make their suffering equal to the blood of Jesus, and there's no equal to that. Amen? Amen? Now, what Paul is saying here, what Paul actually means in Colossians, is that he was going to suffer more 
for the Christ who died on the cross for him. He'd already experienced great suffering and he knew that he was going to suffer more. There were afflictions that lacked in his life because the Lord wasn't finished with him yet. He's saying to the church at Galatia, listen, I have scars on my body and Jesus did too. And I suffered for the one who suffered for me. He's saying nothing more than that. And remember what he said in verse 12 about the Judaizers wanting to avoid persecution. Paul says, I'm not going to let persecution bother me. I've already got scars. I've already been wounded. And I was thinking this morning about King Richard. When his knights would return from the battlefield, the king would call them in and make them strip down till they were bare naked and stand in front of him. And he would examine their whole body. And if he found no scars on them, he would send his knights back out and say, go get some scars. You haven't been in the fight. And listen, we need to remember the words of Martin Luther. He said, if you're fighting on any other front than the one currently under attack, you're not really in the battle. That's right. That's right. We are at war. Yes. And we're going to get scars. And we need to remember this. Here's our third and concluding point. Listen, the cross allows us to escape suffering in hell, but not always in life. The cross allows us to escape suffering in hell, but not always in life. And listen, I've said this in the past, so have you. But I can say it again today, and it's a truthful statement. I have never seen so much evil happening in our world as I see right now. Exactly. It is just a heinous time to be alive as far as the evil that's happening in our world. There's so many bad things that are happening to good people that we see right now. And this makes me even more thankful for the cross because the cross is the only means by which eternal suffering can be escaped. It is only by the shed blood of Jesus that we can be justified and reconciled to God, having been estranged from him by our sins. And this is why Paul would tell Titus on the island of Crete. And I always find it funny, you know, Paul, he wasn't known for mincing words. He said, you know, the Cretans are uh, liars and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. They are. Face it. But he tells Titus in 2, 11 to 15, whom he had left alone in Crete on an island filled with lazy beasts and gluttonous liars. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, simultaneously doing this, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for all the people he likes. No. Gave himself for who? Us. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. He says, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. And then he says this, let no one despise you. Now listen, the word despise means to depreciate. And I believe the Lord would say to CCT and Christians all over the world today, do not let anyone depreciate the power of the gospel. Do not let anyone depreciate the power of the gospel. Now, our part in that is to deny ungodly lusts and worldliness while living soberly, righteously, and godly, while looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the only reason we have that blessed hope That's the only hint I'm giving you. <laughs> the cross. Yeah. 
of Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, one last thing. It might be the last thing. First Peter 4, 12 to 14, Peter writes this. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Anybody ever have something happen and you went, wow, this is weird. Why did that happen? Well, you know, I was doing so good. Why did that come my way? Or why did God allow this? And he says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. That's what we always do when suffering comes our way, right? We're glad with exceeding joy. He says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He would go on to say on their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. Isn't that why we're still here? Yes. To glorify God, even under persecution. I've got one last zinger for you. Can you take it? This is what we learned when we studied 1 Peter years ago and we arrived at those very verses. Our concluding observation this morning is a reminder, and it's just this. God's glory is more important than our comfort. Amen. God's glory is more important than our comfort. We won't spend a single second suffering in purgatory because there's no such place. We're not going to see the fires of hell after we die. But in this life, Jesus said, you will have tribulation in John 16, 33. But Jesus said, be of good cheer. He says, in this life, you'll suffer tribulation, but be of good cheer. I'm having problems with the sequencing with that. Sequencing, aren't you? Suffering tribulation and being of good cheer don't seem to be companions. They're diametrically opposed, it seems like. Am I talking? This isn't a testimony, by the way. I'm representative of all of us, I, I thought. Why could he say that? It's a wonder of the cross. It's because where we're going is better than where we are. And where we're going is where we're going to be the longest. And where we're going is nothing like it is right now. And there is no evil there. There is none of the things that make us cry there. There's no pain there, and we're there forever. And through the cross, we avoid eternal damnation. Through the cross, our justification is justified because God's retributive justice is satisfied. And we need to give thanks as we remember there's no human action or religious ritual that is equal to the shed blood of Jesus. No one is good enough to go to heaven except for Jesus. Yeah. And through the cross, we are in him Amen. and his glory is more important than our comfort somebody say Amen. Amen the only thing I can add to our study of Galatians is even so come quickly Lord Jesus pray with me please father we are grateful for your word we thank you for the things that uh, Paul has taught us through this letter to the church at Galatia we pray that we Take them to heart, God, as we uh, seek to live out our lives as uh, those who follow and trust in you. And we thank you, Lord, that in your callings of those you were closest to as you physically walked this earth, you just gave them one instruction. You said, follow me. And help us to do that too today. We have so much written for our benefit, even as Paul said in Romans, the things written in the Old Testament were for our learning. So help us to learn how to walk and talk and live.
to the things we read. And Lord, we are grateful for this time in this magnificent book that you gave us. The book that's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Help us to live by it and like it is all true as we look for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks today for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.